Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. I was raised as an only child, which kind of annoyed my sister. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from filmmaker Boz Lorman. Mm. That'll help break the ice. And believe it or not, our listeners voted that the best joke we aired all year. <laughs> it's true. I don't know yep. how it happened. And this is our best of 2013 show, just in time for 2014. Don't worry, the show gets better. Coming up, the best bits of our conversations with folks like Daniel Radcliffe, Laura Dern, Lars Ulrich, Nick Kroll, Dan Savage, Margaret Atwood, William H. Macy, and many more. Plus song selections from reggae legend Jimmy Cliff, a story from Elizabeth Gilbert, and the oddest odd news of the year. It's like a filet mignon, except free, <laughs> you guys. Or if you're vegan, it's like glazed lentil walnut loaf. That's right at the side of yoga. And as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. This is the part of the show where we talk to a journalist about their favorite odd news story of the week. And there were many excellent examples, but here's a few of our favorites, starting with one from Rehan Harmansi, senior editor of the food magazine Modern Farmer. Well, now you can actually rent chickens. Urban poultry keeping is sweeping the nation, but what if you don't really want to commit to the chicken? What if you just want a part-time chicken? This doesn't sound right at all. Does this mean there's, like, chicken pimps in the world? Like, like is there a well, rooster somewhere with, like, a mint green suit and a cane? <laughs> I hope so. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'm interested in this story about this um, Dutch art duo who created a perfume that was made up of 1,400 samples of every perfume that was launched in 2012. I'm talking about the story I read in the BBC News magazine. Apparently in Iceland, one in ten people will publish a book in his or her lifetime. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a coat that Mm -hmm. simulates hugging you, like it's a feeling of being hugged from behind. It's a brand new invention. Some crazy guys at a university in Japan. Crazy or lonely? Well, that's a fine line, so... (laughs) They're in a university and they're guys, so they're probably both. Exactly. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Basically what happened is the Statue of Liberty Mm -hmm. that is on those forever stamps is not actually the Statue of Liberty. The Postal Service made a mistake. Images of what they thought was the Statue of Liberty was a statue outside of a casino in (laughs) Vegas. Well, there's a new study that was just published having to do with death in the U.S. from lightning strikes. And there is, in fact, a gender disparity, 82% male. 18% 18% female. Wow. So mostly men get hit? I think it's because men's belt buckles are bigger. <laughs> well, in Texas, you have to worry about snuff cans in their pockets, and so you get that tin <laughs> lid on there, and that's going to be an issue as well. Wow. wow. I've been very intrigued by a new study that's about words that some linguists feel are up to 15,000 years old. The Washington Post rather laboriously put together an entire paragraph made up of All the right, words. let's hear it. You, hear me, give this fire to that old man. Pull the black worm off the bark and give it to the mother. And no spitting in the ashes. Sounds like an odd future song. And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history. 
Then we have a bartender invent a custom cocktail to pair with it. It's our crowd-pleasing history lesson with booze. And this year we learned the history of everything from traffic lights to Jane Fonda's workout tapes. Quite a range. But our favorite was about the origin of a certain minimalist piece of swimwear, Mm. told as always by our friend Michelle Philippi. If Sports Illustrated existed in 1900, its swimsuit issue would not have been especially titillating. Back then, the standard ladies' swimsuit wasn't much different than her everyday clothes. It was basically a dress, plus a hat, and even shoes. By World War II, with fabric and short supply, slightly more revealing two-piece numbers were considered okay. But even they didn't expose anything so scandalous as a belly button. But post-war, a couple of Frenchmen sensed the world was ready to loosen up. The first of them, one Jacques Heim, designed a two-piece so tiny he called it l'atome, the atom. But Heim was one-upped by his countryman, Louis Riard. In July 1946, he unveiled an even tinier suit, the bikini, named after a Pacific Island atoll where, four days earlier, an atomic bomb had been tested. Riar claimed he had, quote, split the atom. Public reactions were extreme. Riar got 50,000 fan letters thanking him for the invention, mostly from men, but in some countries, shocked lawmakers instated bikini bans. Riar happily embraced the controversy. In ads, he said bikinis were small enough to be, quote, pulled through a wedding ring. Soon, the anti-bikini lobby collapsed as the suit became more popular on beaches all over Europe and finally in 1960 in the USA. The same year, singer Brian Hyland scored a number one hit about a girl too embarrassed to be seen in one. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm speaking with Thibaut Gancet, bar manager at La Famille in Paris, the town where the bikini first debuted. Thibaut, you heard the history. What drink did it inspire you to make? So the bikini, I wanted to do something related to the island where the name came from. Oh, the bikini atoll. Exactly. Where they dropped the nuclear bomb. Yeah. So uh, I made the drink in two parts, one representing the bikini and the other one representing the bomb. (laughs) The bikini one being on top of the other one. So you're actually going to serve these drinks one on top of the other one. Yeah, because when you drink it, you just can take the first one on top of it and pour it in the other one. Oh, okay. You mix it yourself. All right. So you start with what? You start with what's the bottom? With, with the bottom. We start with the round glass. A round glass. We put some rum, some spicy rum. Okay. A little bit of spiced sugar that I made with some vanilla and uh, cinnamon. Oh, man, that sounds delicious. And a little bit of uh, lemongrass. Lemongrass? Yeah. So it'll give it some tang. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I wanted something really strong to remind the bomb. Oh, yeah, kind of radioactive almost in yeah. the mouth. <laughs> and in the glass, I, I use nitrogen, liquid nitrogen, to make some smoke coming out, out of the glass to represent the bomb. <laughs> Just for anybody who has, you know, liquid nitrogen hanging around their kitchen. Yeah, because we, we use a lot of it at, at the bar working, actually. Really? So it basically looks like a rock concert constantly at your bar. <laughs> that's fun. So, all right, so that's in the bottom glass. What's in the top glass? Then in the other one, I prepared something more fruity, more uh, remind the bikini, like the beach, with fresh fruits and a different herb. Okay, so something refreshing and sweet. Yeah, so you got some fresh apple, a little bit of cranberry juice, 
Basil and a little bit of a liqueur from, made from elderflower. Oh, elderflower liqueur. So um, like Saint-Germain. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. <laughs> that's the one, yeah. That's great. So you serve that on top of the bottom glass, sort of like the bikini trumping the bomb. Exactly. The bikini wins. <laughs> <laughs> And Brendan, I have to say, hearing that story now at the beginning of January, it really (laughs) makes the bikini seem like ancient history. Totally. Doesn't it? Maybe we should have done footsie pajamas. Yep. The history of soup. Yeah. (laughs) But people, we have cocktail recipes and they will keep you warm. You'll find them all at dinnerpartydownload.org. So our very first guest of 2013 was the director, David O. Russell. And on our final show of the year, we spoke with Nancy Sinatra. In between, hundreds of others sat down at our virtual dinner table. Sometimes we chatted with them, and sometimes they gave us lists. Yes, and when they do the latter, we call them guest lists. See how we do that? Clever of us. It is. Here are Grammy-winning musicians, They Might Be Giants, with one of our favorites of the year. Hi, this is John Linnell of They Might Be Giants. And this is John Flansburg. And we are here to promote our brand new album, Nanobots. The album has 25 songs in 45 minutes, and in celebration of that idea, we are here to present some other very short pieces of creative work. When we were uh, given the assignment to present some short things that we enjoyed, I, I thought of William Carlos Williams' poem, This Is Just to Say, which I think of as William Carlos Williams' famous poem. This is just to say I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. I'm going to follow that up with a second William Carlos Williams poem. Cake topping me. That's right. Is that an expression? I'm I'm not aware of cake topping. Yes. In other words, someone does something and then you, you... with yeah. the icing on, yes. so to speak. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, this is um, this is a poem that I actually memorized once again um, with the cake topping. Yes, not enough. Yes. Not enough. Yes. Just just to to love a William Carlos Williams. Yes. Here it is. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. I think the reason why I can remember the entire William Carlos Williams poem is because it is indeed so short. But I think my mother, I believe my mother wrote an entire sort of thesis paper about that poem. That might be the other reason why I'm remembering it. And it was a very long paper about, you know, something like six lines of poetry. So that, that, that's sort of an impressive fact in itself. Next up, we have the song Propaganda by the band Sparks. For people who are not familiar with Sparks, they were uh, a band that was originally from L.A. They had chart success in the U.K. with the glam movement in the mid-'70s. They were a very startling group in, in almost every way. My partner, Mr. John Flansburg, put on the album. As I recall, the weirdest thing about it was it sounded like there were people in the room with us. It sounded so realistic that I actually jumped out of my skin. The song is only 23 seconds long. Hello, soldier boy, oh boy, she's spewing out the propaganda. Propaganda. Might makes right, you are wrong, you're right to fight the propaganda. 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 Come to our side, she does say. Come on over, she does say. When I don't need more competition for her affection, you should fight on, fight on over there. 23 seconds long. Solid gold. <laughs> This is a track from an album called The Residents Commercial Album. The Residents were a 
experimental band that started in the early 70s. Early 70s. They did truly unusual homemade music. Uh, the identity of the band members was never revealed, and it, it, it's possible that there really was only one guy doing the whole thing. They are shrouded in mystery, the residents. They appear in public with gigantic eyeballs for heads with top hats. And one of the albums they made was an entire album of songs each song only one minute in length called the commercial album and i think the idea of it is that that they were supposed to be paid advertising was going to be on the radio in other words they, they would pay a radio station to play their minute-long song as a commercial but it was of course was undistinguishable from the programming so to wrap things up we'll end things fittingly with a very short song off our brand new album nanobots this song is called Hive mind, it's six, it's six seconds long. It's sexy. It's six seconds long. <laughs> you want to say it again? Should I do that? I that, should, I do that? should I do that whole Just thing? Just say the, the end again. Okay. It's six seconds long. God, that's <laughs> hard to say. It is all of six seconds. Hive mind. Hive mind. And that's it. They Might Be Giants with a short guest list that topped our short list of favorite guest lists of the year. And to keep with the theme, we're going to take a short break. Nice. Coming up, we continue this Best of 2013 show featuring chats with Laura Dern, Julia Stiles, William H. Macy, and Margaret Atwood. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and you're listening to our Best of 2013 show, an audio cornucopia of our favorite moments, and that's one of my favorite words, nice. uh, of last year. Double whammy. Coming up, we talk to the creator of probably the biggest food fad of the year, and we'll get some song recommendations from reggae superstar Jimmy Cliff. But first, let us look back at our etiquette segment. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and we anoint a person of note to answer them. Sometimes they dole out surprisingly excellent advice, but more often it's all just an excuse to get them to talk about their own pretty questionable behavior. Like when fashion expert and beloved Project Runway host Tim Gunn railed against the evils of cargo capri pants... <laughs> And then we asked him this. Let me ask you, was it, what's, is there an item of clothing that you feel is your biggest mistake? He's not going to admit it. I will. Oh. I, this is how much I love you guys. I've never told anyone this. Wow. I once bought a pair of leather jeans. Black <laughs> leather jeans. If you're not in a band, that's not allowed. Oh, my oh God. Tim boy. Gunn, that's a, you could rock that right now. People oh, would totally, no. they would, no. oh, you you could do it. Not a many people Grandpa could. Grandpa would go into the <laughs> fashion insane asylum. What was the impetus for that? I, I just thought there's an inherent sexiness to them. Yeah. And sure. I thought, you know, there aren't any real age barriers. I, I'll also confide in you, this factor makes it even more sad and pathetic. They were leather capri pants? They were leather, yes, they were leather oh. cargo capris. No, I'm kidding. No, I, I could never wear them out of my apartment. I ne couldn't do it. Yeah, it just wasn't you. It wasn't Tim Gunn. No. And it was only recently that I took them to Goodwill. Oh, I pictured you waking up one morning, putting them in a bag in the back of your car, driving 400 miles outside New York and dropping them off. Well, yeah. that is where the Goodwill was. <laughs> Columbus, Ohio. 
Tim Gunn proving even fashion gurus can on occasion be fashion victims. Watch out. Yes. We also spoke this year to Lars Ulrich, drummer and co-founder of heavy metal giants Metallica. They just released their 3D IMAX concert film, Through the Never. Yes, still the only press screening I've ever attended where they handed out earplugs at the door. And you're still deaf. It's hard for me to be in radio yeah. now. But while, he, <laughs> but while Lars does play loud, he confessed to living pretty quietly <laughs> after he destroyed our idea of rock godhood by saying he works out, goes to bed early, and is on a strict health food diet. Man. Rico said this. I think this leads well to this question. You're kind of known as standard bearers of in, that kind of intense metal. God help we us want, all. Uh, we want to know. <laughs> what is Is that the name of your next album? Or is that... It is now. <laughs> we should no. note that you're eating right now part of your diet. You're eating some scrambled eggs right now. That's right. Yeah, and please note those are egg whites. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Pure protein. Oh, yeah. He wasn't kidding, folks. So here's the question. What What is hiding in your iPod that would surprise people? Like, we're looking for Yanni-level surprise here. What, are, what, <laughs> what do you listen to when you go to bed after, when you, when you go to bed after a concert at 9.15 um, post-Coco? I, I really don't listen to music uh, other than in the car. Usually my iPod mercilessly gets unplugged by one of the kids and they put their iPhones in and then um, I'm listening to whatever they want I'm going to listen to. In the deeper, darker corners of my iPod, I've got a lot of jazz. I grew up uh, in a jazz household, uh, even the occasional Chardet, uh, if you must know. Um, wow. There we go. There's the mother load. There, there you go. Lars Ulrich of Metallica. Yeah. And right after that interview, he made himself some chamomile tea, <laughs> pulled on fur slippers, and had to sing him lullabies. <laughs> it was shocking, ladies and gentlemen. But also somewhat shocking, I have to say. We have yet in this recap of the year's etiquette advice to include any actual etiquette advice, Brendan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's remedy that right now. Here's humor columnist Celia Rivenbark. When we spoke to her, she had just put out a whole etiquette book called Rude female dogs make me tired except she used a different word for female dogs correct uh we posed to her a question from our listener jack in santa monica jack asks should i warn my guests that i recently saw a mouse in my kitchen it's been gone for a few days but i don't know where it is (laughs) (laughs) i you know what of course you should. And you sh- and uh, Jack, really? was it uh, Jack, you should also be sure and tell everybody about any extramarital affairs you're having <laughs> or how your toe fungus <laughs> is progressing because while you're sharing, don't leave anything out. That is the stupidest yeah. thing I've ever heard in my life. No, of course you don't tell them. Of course you do not tell them because the the heart of good etiquette if you're hosting, you don't want to make your guest uncomfortable. Oh, that's true. But what it's if crazy. the right. so and if the mouse shows up, you're like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Well, exactly. You play it off. Yeah. You play it right, off like, right. oh my goodness. First time ever. Oh so. yeah. I had a little dinner party oh a while back and I heard an awful sound and I knew what it was just as I was opening the door for the first guest and it was my husband and he was using his shoe, his size thirteen shoe, to kill a water bug the size of Kansas. <laughs> I mean, we call them water bug, it's cockroaches, but in yeah. the south we don't like that word. No. So it was a water bug. <laughs> But, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, my God, that noise. That's him killing water bugs in the kitchen. Come on in. We're having souffle. No. What did you say it was? I just said, oh, he's hammering something. The wonderful Celia Rivenbark with a version of our favorite bit of etiquette advice, which is basically to lie. Ain't that the truth? Indeed. All right. And let's close things out with one of our favorite ever etiquette guests, talk show legend and name dropper extraordinaire Dick Cavett. Mm. He returned to our show last March, and we posed a question from a listener named J.R., who wanted to know if there was a polite way to walk out during a live theater performance. I think it is awful for the actors 
who are probably doing their best. Probably. But mm. then you and the audience are doing your best, too, and you don't deserve to be bored stiff. Yeah. And can they see you? I mean, it's dark. You were an actor. I, I would die rather than drop a name, but I went to <laughs> a play of course. this past year. James Gandolfini oh. was in it. Went back to see him afterwards, and he said, I saw you all through the first act. I was sitting in the front row, and the mm. lights spill, as we call right. it in the theater. I was as well lighted as Gandolfini and the other <laughs> actors were. So that's a good but, strategy for Jr. Maybe to get a seat in the back, yes. where it's dark. Sit near the back, or sit with a friend and start talking to the friend in full voice, chattering about yeah. things like, "Is John McCain getting even weirder?" And you know, what a, what a <laughs> Cardinal Mahoney certainly won't be the next pope to annoy people around you. And then, oh, I like this. You get kicked out. Yeah, then you, it's not on your head, so to speak. All oh, right. So wait a minute. The polite thing to do is to talk loudly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and get thrown out, and that way. And so you don't have to feel guilty in one bit. <laughs> I oh, see. oh, Miss Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn, Stratford, Connecticut, summer of '57, Merchant of Venice. She's starring as Portia. I'm an extra on stage. Whoa! Wow. She made her gl- entrance and. As she opened her mouth to speak, Ah, Nerissa, my little body is aweary of it. Bang! A flashbulb. From the audience? Yeah. Miss Hepburn stopped, raised her right hand, and said, We'll pause now (laughs) while one selfish woman gets all the god pictures she wants. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I I promise you, it was more dramatic than anything in the play. Dick Cavett with a classic example of regal politesse, perhaps our favorite etiquette moment of the year. And folks, you could be our favorite etiquette moment of next year. Mm. You can send your questions to us at dinnerpartydownload.org. Click contact. And now, time to eavesdrop. This is the part of the show where we overhear a writer or raconteur share a story. One of the best came from Elizabeth Gilbert, author of the memoir and worldwide phenomenon, Eat, Pray, Love. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Gilbert, and my new book is called The Signature of All Things. It's a story following the fortunes of a fictitious family called the Whitakers. Henry Whitaker made his fortune in the quinine trade, and his daughter Alma is born into this rarefied world in turn of the 19th century Philadelphia Alma herself ultimately grows up to be a respected scientist, and um, part of her brilliance comes from being raised on the family estate, which is called Whiteacre. What I'm about to read is probably the most significant event of her youth. It was late summer of 1808. Maestro Luco Pontesili, the brilliant Italian astronomer, had come to Philadelphia to speak at the American Philosophical Society, and Henry lured him up to Whiteacre by hosting a ball in his honor. This was to be the most elaborate affair the Whitakers had ever attempted. Tropical flowers that had never before been taken out of the balmy forcing houses were arranged in tableaus all over the mansion. Alma was scrubbed, her coxcomb of unruly red hair forced into a satin bow nearly as big as her head. It was hot. The guests spilled out of doors in search of relief, lounging on the verandas, leaning against marble statues, trying in vain to draw coolness from stone. In an effort to slake their thirst, people drank a good deal more punch than perhaps they had intended to drink, and a general air of light-hearted giddiness took hold of everyone. 
The charming Italian astronomer attempted to teach the gentleman of Philadelphia some wild Neapolitan dance steps, and he made his rounds with every lady, too. Shortly after midnight, it was decided that the famous Italian cosmological maestro would recreate a model of the universe on the great lawn of Whiteacre, using the guests themselves as heavenly bodies. With a marvelous air of both authority and comedy, Ponticelli placed Henry Whitaker, the sun, at the center of the lawn. Then he gathered up a number of other gentlemen to serve as planets. Tiny Mercury was portrayed by a diminutive but dignified grain merchant from Germantown. For Jupiter, Ponticelli commandeered a retired sea captain whose corpulent appearance in the solar system reduced the entire party to hysterical laughter. On it went until all the planets were arranged across the lawn at the proper distance from the sun and from each other. Then Ponticelli set them in orbit around Henry. Soon the ladies were clamoring to join the amusement and so Ponticelli arranged them around the men to serve as moons. This landscape of heavenly bodies took on the appearance of the most strange and beautiful waltz the good people of Philadelphia had ever seen. Ponticelli climbed atop a high garden wall and swayed precariously there, crying across the night, Stay at your velocity, men! Do not abandon your trajectory, ladies! Alma wanted to be in it. She had never before seen anything so thrilling. She was the only child in attendance, as she had been for all her life the only child in attendance. She ran over to the garden wall and cried up to the dangerously unstable Maestro Ponticelli, Put me in it, sir! He might have dismissed her entirely, but then Henry bellowed from the center of the solar system, Give the girl a place! Ponticelli shrugged. You're a comet! What does a comet do, sir? You fly about in all directions, the Italian commanded. And so she did. She propelled herself into the midst of the planets, scuttling and twirling, ribbons unfurling from her hair. Whenever she neared her father, he would cry, Not so close to me, Plum, or you will burn to cinders and push her away. Astonishingly, at some point, a sputtering torch was thrust into her hands. The torch spit sparks as she bolted across the cosmos, the only body not held to a strict elliptical path. Nobody stopped her. She was a comet. She did not know that she was not flying. Author Elizabeth Gilbert reading from her latest book, The Signature of All Things, And you're listening to the best of the Dinner Party Download 2013 from American Public Media, Earth. And now it's time for our main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And in this case, it's our main, main course of the year. Oh, yes. Yeah. It would be. This year we covered the rise of Filipino cuisine. We featured a salt that's made on the roof of a skyscraper. But there was one food item that overshadowed all the others. Yes, a small and tasty shadow. We are talking, of course, about the cronut. This croissant deep fried like a donut is now not only a household name, but it's inspired imitators across the country. Brendan visited its inventor, Dominique Ansel, just as this thing was becoming a local New York City craze. The cornet was just in the beginning an addition to replace another of the items, which was a pistachio sticky bun. It was just to replace it. I, I didn't know it was going to take off like this and people were going to go crazy, literally, <laughs> for it. Uh, I like to come up with like new ideas, new things to do, new things to, like, to try. And uh, I think that uh, donut that meets a croissant was a fun idea. The croissant is a classic Viennese, uh, Viennese, right? 
Viennoiserie. Viennoiserie. Okay. Um, thanks for your help. And what does that mean, a viennoiserie? What defines that sort of pastry? So the word viennoiserie is coming uh, from uh, Vienne, which, which is Vienna. Mm -hmm. So what defines viennoiserie is really some breaded items, some layered. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of a bread, mm -hmm. but a little bit like lighter, flakier. And then what would a donut, or would that be considered in pastry? Yeah, I would say donut will be in the viennoiserie family if he was French. Okay. <laughs> You, you know, are a celebrated pastry chef, classically trained. You've been doing this for quite a long time, since you were 16, right? Since I was 16. So I've been working in the kitchen for about more than 20 years now. If, would any of your old masters in pastry be offended by the idea of the cronut? I think they'll be questioning me about, like, why? Why do you do that? That's very, like, unusual. I don't think, like, any French person will even, like, go there, try to fry a croissant, because it's not, not appropriate. But, you know, like, I like to be open-minded to see, like, different things and try different things. And why not? I try it and it tasted good. Yeah. It tasted good and people think it's amazing, so why not? And you tried 11 different recipes, correct? I tried a lot of different recipes. So if you take, like, just a, a classic croissant dough, you might, like, find a lot of issues. The butter will melt when you try to fry it. The layer will slide off. The fermentation will not be right. There's, like, many, many, like, different technical aspect mm -hmm. that might occur to this dough when you try to fry it. Mm -hmm. So it's actually not exactly a croissant dough, but it's very similar. And so when did you, did you know when you, hound, when you had it? Like when you got to that 11th time where you're like, voila. <laughs> I was not like voila, but... <laughs> what would you say when you were excited about something? Oh, there you go. We're here. <laughs> we're here, baby. <laughs> All right. So when did you say, we're here, baby, we got it? I walked the recipes like time after time until... I really had what I want to have. So I want to have like the layers inside were so, so important to me. I want to see like, still have the effect of a croissant, which was like many, many layers. So I've also read that these cronuts have only have a shelf life of six hours. Is that true? That's true. It's actually a, um, a matter of fact for most of the Viennoiserie items and bread as well. So growing up in France, you learn, quickly learn that any bread, any croissant have a, has a shelf life that is very short. I'll say six hours because I think that's like reasonable for me. Most people will keep a croissant for a day or two. I don't suggest it. But with the cronut, you have not had that problem because they have not even stuck around for more. You sell out within 15 minutes. Is that, is that true? We sell out between like 20 and 30 minutes now. Before we open the doors, we have about 100 to 200 people outside. How, how does it feel to kind of see people outside your door? I mean, it feels amazing. Uh, to me, the satisfaction of being a chef is really to give pleasure to people, to excite them, to give them something they've never had, to see the expression in the eyes or like in the face, the smile when they eat something and they really feel that it's something they've never had before. But the people aren't always smiling satisfied. They're also grumbling, right? When they, when they haven't, when you ran out of cronuts, there's been cronut rage. <laughs> yes, that's true. I think a lot of people get emotional because they really want it. They see it everywhere. They read about it. They hear about it. And they get so, so excited. Um, to me, like food is based on memory. A lot of people uh, rely on what they, they were eating when they were little. So taking something that people know, like a croissant, a donut, and fusion it together, make it exciting because they, they know what both taste. So people get very emotional when they cannot get it. And a lot of people have been asking, why don't you make more and why, why don't you hire more stuff? The thing is that we're not a corner shop. 
we uh, French bakery, we have lots of great items on the menu, yeah. and I don't want to compromise all of those items. Yeah. I want to make it enough to satisfy people that comes early in the morning that really wants it. But I want to keep the quality over the quantity. So I want to keep the integrity of the bakery. Usually I end a food segment by tasting the food item, but the cronut is so popular that we are cronutless. Is that true? We are cronutless for today. <laughs> I'm not even a journalist. I'm just a crazy guy who pretended to be when they get a cronut and it didn't work for me. I'll try to save one for you. <laughs> Enrico, there you have it. The best French-American hybrid since Kurt Cobain. <laughs> Was he really? Cobain. I guess that is French. There it is, man. That's interesting. Oh, the teen is three, my friend. <laughs> Voila. All right, folks. Coming up, reggae artist Jimmy Cliff presents our favorite dinner party playlist of the year. And you will learn stuff you didn't know from Daniel Radcliffe, Julia Stiles, William H. Macy, and more. When the best of the dinner party download 2013 continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner parties. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We are refusing to live in the future by dwelling just a bit longer in the past. This is our best of 2013 show. In a few minutes, we'll hear reggae legend Jimmy Cliff presenting one of our favorite dinner party playlists of the year. Then we're going to look back on the trivia we were taught by guests of honor like Margaret Atwood, Daniel Radcliffe, and many more. Mm. But first up, comedian Nick Kroll, who visited our studios almost exactly a year ago this week. Wow. He had just launched his aptly titled sketch comedy series, Kroll Show, on Comedy Central. <laughs> Here's his dinner party-worthy tale about the day two very different holidays collided. I was 18 and I was living in Spain, spending a lot of time with uh, my buddy Mark from California, and he was still trying to speak Spanish all the time. So one day he comes up to me and he's like, Nicolás, vamos a Germany a beber muchas cervezas para uh, Oktoberfest. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's go to Oktoberfest. We got on a train to Munich. We had met these brothers who had been surfing in San Sebastian, and they're like, if you ever come to Germany, you have to stay with us for Oktoberfest. And so we're like, great. Uh, I'm going to call them the Fünf Brothers, because my favorite German word is Fünf, which is five, but it sounds like someone's been kicked in the groin. So a couple of things that the Fünf Brothers neglected to tell us. One, that they were uh, not living actually in Munich, but in the suburbs of Munich. And two, they were Orthodox Hungarian Jews. So we get there. We were like, well, let's go to Oktoberfest. And they're like, okay, but um, it's the Sabbath. So we can't uh, drive in a car or spend any money. So we had to walk from the suburbs of Munich into Oktoberfest. Now, these kids couldn't handle money and they couldn't drive in cars, but they had no problem getting drunk and ogling German girls. So we had a great time at Oktoberfest. We got good and sauced, but controlled for the most part. And at like six the next morning, I get woken up by the Fumpf brothers. Well, last night, you know, you said that you wanted to uh, join us for Yom Kippur. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I guess I was a little tipsier than I remembered. Ironically, Yom Kippur was the Jewish day of repentance. So this was the day that you're supposed to be like, God, so sorry. Are we cool? Thank you, God. I'm not a religious person, but I thought, God, my mom would be so proud of me if she knew that I had gone to Yom Kippur services in Germany 
during Oktoberfest. So I got up, I put on the closest thing I had to a suit, uh, which is probably like half a later hosen, and uh, walked an hour and a half in the rain to uh, an old age home where they were helping to make a, a service. We got there at like 7.30 in the morning and we started to pray. Now I have gone to services for much of my life, but I couldn't follow anything. The other thing about Yom Kippur is you're not allowed to drink or eat anything. Now I was Oktoberfest hungover, dehydrated, starving. I can't drink or eat anything. And for 12 hours, I sit in a room with like 15 old German Jews just slowly dying. Not very repentant at all to God. Maybe apologies should go the other way. We finish up services, and I've been told that we're going to go break the fast at a pizza place. I'm so excited for that. I'm getting everyone's coats ready to be like, all right, Funf Brothers, we're all ready to go now. At which point, one of them comes up and they're like, so uh, our father was asked by the rabbi if we would stay to break the fast here at the old age home. <laughs> so I had to eat like old age home smoked fish. And I got home at probably about 9, 9.30. My buddies rolled home at midnight, hammered, and we had to get on a train the next morning. So the next morning I woke up, was packing, and realized that in my drunkenness, my first night at Oktoberfest, I had lost my wallet. So now I have no Eurorail pass, I have no wallet, and I have to get out of Germany. So I got on the train, and every time the conductor came through and I'd hear like, I would run to the bathroom and hide. So I literally left Germany hiding on a train. Does not get much more Jewish than that. And once I got to Paris, the French turned me in. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Nick Kroll telling one of our favorite tales of the year. The second season of his sketch comedy series, Kroll Show, launches on Comedy Central January 14th. And if you're not Jewish, you might have learned a few things there about Yom Kippur, right? Yeah, how not to celebrate it. Indeed. But (laughs) the fact is, on this show, we always make sure you learn something you wouldn't otherwise know. How do we do that, Brendan? By asking our guests to tell us something we don't know. That's right. It's genius. This is one of the two standard questions we ask all our guests of honor. We got a ton of great answers this year, and we thought we'd share some of our favorites. We are going to hear from actors Daniel Radcliffe, Julia Stiles, Laura Dern, and William H. Macy, also Spring Breakers director Harmony Corinne, and columnist Dan Savage. But we're going to begin with author Margaret Atwood. Yes, the author of The Handmaid's Tale spoke with Rico about her latest sci-fi novel, Mad Adam. It's set in a dystopian world after a plague wipes out most of humanity. Tell us something we don't know. Okay, how about this? Polar bears and grizzly bears are actually hybridizing? They're, they're like interspecies grizzly polars? They're mating? Yes. And is that because of environmental climate change? Because their environments are sort of growing together, I guess? That is what we suppose. Do we know, are these, is the result a nicer bear or a more horrifying bear? Oh, uh, <laughs> time will tell. All right, so you're leaving us with another potentially dystopian nightmare. Well, I don't think that, you know, you live in Los Angeles, don't you? Yeah, we'll be okay. So I don't think any polar bears are going to come walking through your back door anytime soon. But just what we need, another reason for people to move here. <laughs> To escape. You think they'll be driven south by all the bears? By the mega bears. I don't think you've heard of the gun word. It's a (laughs) thing that you pull something and there's a bang. 
You think they'll be more likely to fight off the mega bears than flee to SoCal? <laughs> I think so. There's your next novel, by the way. I think we just wrote it. Mega bears? Yes. <laughs> You're welcome. Even better. Mega bears in Los Angeles. All right, Daniel Radcliffe, tell us something we don't know, something you haven't talked about in interviews before, or just an interesting fact about the world. Oh, interesting facts. Well, I mean, uh, okay, so you know when you see a pub sign that says uh, ye oldie tavern or whatever. Yeah, yeah, with the O-L-D-E spelling, yeah. Well, the Y-E, everyone's pronounces it ye, but that Y is actually a thing called a thorn. It's an old English letter, which was a combination of a T and an H, and so you do still pronounce it the. That Y in that context amounts to a T-H. And how do you know that fact? Um, TV. <laughs> That's a great. It wasn't an Amazon book that some recommended. No, no, no. That was that was. I think that was off uh, QI, which is an English show that if you don't know it, everyone should check it out. There's lo- lots of excerpts on YouTube. So, right. and if you want a fact about myself that nobody knows, it is I know by heart know all the lyrics to the Real Slim Shady, but I'm not going to do them for you now. Julia Stiles, tell us something we don't know about you or the world at large. It could be an obscure fact. Interesting fact: in a woman's lifespan, when she dies. She will have consumed, on average, 10 pounds of lipstick. Oh, my god! Just from the little bits of licking your lips throughout your life. Oh, my god! 10 pounds. Do you use less makeup knowing that? Yeah, you because... You seem super makeup here. Um, thank you? Question mark? <laughs> um, I... Your well, lips look lip I try to give my face a break because, you know, to have to wear, like, foundation and all that on a movie set, you know, I try to give my yeah. skin a break. And then you do a lot of stage acting. There's a lot of makeup involved in that. All day long. So you could... We're talking 15, 20 pounds of lipstick consumption. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so gross. All right, Harmony Corinne, tell us something we don't know. Um, I got, like, third place in a pantomime contest when I was, like, uh, 12... Marcel Marceau type mime? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd never done it before, but uh, it was an international pantomime contest, and I lived right up the street. And I think I skateboarded up, and as a joke, I just went out on stage. I took a number. I guess I, like, threw out these moves that were pretty incredible. <laughs> and out of, like, 1,500 people, I still have this trophy. It's a third-place pantomime, Belmont College. <laughs> okay, Laura Dern, tell us something you haven't talked about in interviews before. My most embarrassing moment was I was 12 years old, and my mother invited Scott Baio and his family over on New Year's Eve. And Scott Baio was the biggest heartthrob on television and in film at the time. And I had been in my first movie with him, which was called Foxes, and I was so excited he was coming over. And he sat down on a couch in a white leisure suit. It was the year of Saturday Night Fever. And, you know, he was beautiful, and I was 12. And my dog um, passed him, and he was like, cuddling her and my dog is in heat Uh and has like an accident all over Scott Baio's pants and even worse someone standing there is like oh you know what'll get that out is club soda and I proceeded to have to (laughs) clean it out oh my god Perrier (laughs) so that is probably the most troubling thing that's ever happened to me that no one knew till this week William H. Macy, what's something we don't know about you? I might have said this before in an interview, but it never got printed because I'm the only one that cares. And it's not something that we don't know. It's something we've never thought of. Okay. You know when you're watching television and at the bottom of the screen, they have all these people run in and jump around, try to get your attention and announce what's coming next. And it always happens right at some climactic moment. You mean those like those overlays where they yeah. have the characters from the next show coming up? Yeah. And it <laughs> used to be just a scroll announcing it. But now they have... They shrink the character down to so he or she is about a quarter of the screen. And they're leaping around, waving their arms, trying to get our attention. <laughs> it's absurd. Somebody made that decision. <laughs> there was a guy who said, 
or a gal who said, I think this is a good idea. I know. Somebody said, that's a good idea. Somebody said, this is what America <laughs> wants. I'm guessing that's not the type of person you'd hang out with, the person no. who makes that decision. I just want to meet him or her. <laughs> I just want to say, really? Really? <laughs> Look what you've done. No, I think you should find them, and then there'll be in a meeting or at a party, and you just run up to them and yeah. interrupt them and say yeah. something completely... <laughs> or wait till they're giving a speech and just yeah. go up with uh, some cards, you know. I'll be performing in Shameless next weekend. All right, Dan Savage, you being a sex advice columnist, I'm a little wary of asking this question. Tell us something we don't know. Um, I'm a really good snowboarder, which is, is a strange thing. You know, I'm a musical theater, you know, Mama's Boy, Homeboy. My parents had eight-track tapes of all these Broadway shows, and I memorized them all, and I didn't play any team sports, and I wasn't athletic. And so I am, like, the least likely, what's up, dude? Let's go hit some powder. <laughs> Uh, human being on the planet, but at age seven, my son, who was a skateboarder already, decided oh. he wanted to learn how to snowboard, and then that wasn't good enough that he snowboarded. His dads had to snowboard too. Well, did they have to? You didn't. It doesn't sound like you put up much of a fight. Was oh, I a... fought. Really? I had to be dragged up the mountain. I hated it, and then I somehow did it once, and I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" <laughs> and now the only difference between me and everybody else snowboarding is everyone's got their headphones. And they're listening to rap, and they're listening to God knows what. I am literally coming down the mountain listening to Gypsy. <laughs> if Mama was married, I'd live in a house. It's like carve. If Mama was married, we'd live in a house as private as private can be. An embarrassment of trivia from some of our favorite guests of honor of the year. In reverse order, that was Dan Savage, William H. Macy, Laura Dern, Harmony Corinne, Julia Stiles, Daniel Radcliffe, and Margaret Atwood. Speaking of whom, if you head to dinnerpartydownload.org, you can see cover art created by one of our listeners for the non-existent book Margaret and I concocted, Mega Bears in L.A. We are entertaining offers for the movie rights. I'd get all those hair ribbons out of my hair And once and for all I'd get Mama out too And now, time for some music. Because a party without music... It's just a business meeting with wine. That's right. And many musicians have stopped by the show this year to share their dinner party soundtracks. But our favorite playlist came courtesy of reggae legend Jimmy Cliff. Hi, blessed love. This is Jimmy Cliff. In case you don't know who that is, I desire you say, the harder they come, the harder they fall. <laughs> Good to be with you all. So, okay, here's my list of songs that I would play at a dinner party. Um, there are some of my favorite people that I grew up with who were really inspiring to me. Come on, baby, and be my guest. Come join the party and be the rest. My first song is the Fats Domino, Be My Guest. And I love this song because the first time I performed to an audience bigger than what I would perform to in school was I performed the Fats Domino song, a cappella. And that song was... Be my guest. My, my, oh my. Gee, so fine. Don't let me down. I heard Fats Domino on the radio in Jamaica when I was a, was a little kid. At nights, we could pick up radio in New Orleans, and uh, that's how I heard Fats Domino on the radio there. I love the sound. The beat just was just like popping right through the radio. Well, the next song I'd play would be uh, Sam Cooke, A Change Has Gotta Come. As a child, they used to put on 
Sam Cooke's song on the jukebox and say, sing along with it. <laughs> I sing along with it, they would give me coke. I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, and just like the river, I've been running ever since. Ever since, it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Well, you know, a coke at that time was a great thing. <laughs> it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. So Sam Cooke is also very inspirational for me. One of the great voices. Okay, so another song I'd play at a dinner party is, uh, I would play Ruby Soho. Well, Ruby Soho is a rancid song, and uh, on my new album I've done a cover version of it. Both versions are really good. Well, that song is a song that I identify with so well because um, it speaks about a touring musician who has to leave his family and, you know, the sadness of leaving your family all the time. Your family is there in the distance. You're waving goodbye to them. Destination unknown. Whether it's reggae, or rap, or rock and roll, or country, I like to, I listen to everything, yeah. At a dinner party, I'd play reggae music. Reggae music is a song from my new album. Reggae music gonna make me feel good. Reggae music gonna make me feel all right. That's a great one for the party. That song is kind of really telling my story and kind of the story of reggae from the beginning up to this time, 2013. So it's compact four decades in like a four and a half minute song. 1962, Orange Street, Kingston, Jamaica. I sang my song for Leslie Kong. He said, let's go record it in the style of ska. Reggae legend Jimmy Cliff with a Dinner Party soundtrack. And that's the best of the Dinner Party download for 2013. Thanks for spending this hour and this year with us last year. We can't wait to prep you for social victory throughout 2014. Next week, a brand new show featuring Lupita Nyong'o, Golden Globe nominee for her role in 12 Years a Slave. Till then, please know Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin helps us with our web stuff. Our intern is James Delahousie. And we say goodbye to intern Davey Kim, whose last show this is. We wish him the best of luck and hope he doesn't sue us for making him try all of our cocktails. It's a dream job, kid. Engineering assistance this week came from Brendan Willard. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And bon appetit. Feel all right now.